And I had that picture with me. So I the picture was on the wall in the instant room and that picture was in my file, which obviously, you know, later in the book I talk about when I'm arguing the toss with somebody else. But yeah, really important in any murder and you guys will know this it's really important to have a photograph of your victim because you can get a little bit oh it's another murder you know and forget a little bit about who the person is so to me that was like the number one thing this is who we're talking about this is why we're here today guys this is why we're at work and it just keeps everybody back being a bit human yeah it keeps you focused on your mission Talk about the incident room. What is uh, is that? Is there a separate incident room for each operation? Do you reuse it? You know what? What's how? Tell us about the incident room. Yeah. So in in um, depends where you are, but definitely in Bristol, we had um, on one side of our floor because we had a whole floor for the murder teams. It was like banks of desks where the officers could sit and type their reports and do all that stuff. And then on the other side, we'd have the incident rooms. And, you know, some of them are just like you see on TV. So you've got two offices with glass on them. And you'd write on the glass in white pen or put pictures up there or maps or all that sort of stuff. And banks of desks where all your computers are to input all the information. Big briefing room uh, where you go. So one thing about if you're a good SIO, okay, if you're a good senior investigating officer, you always go to the scene of a murder, always. Because it doesn't matter whether somebody sends you pictures or a video or streams it, you can do whatever you like, unless you're there standing in that room, looking at it and thinking about what it's telling you, you ain't going to feel for it. And uh, I was well known for my pathetic little sketches that I do with stick men in my blue book <laughs> of the murder scene of like, this little stick man here is the body and this little stick person here is where the witness was and this is where the blood is and knives and all sorts of stuff. But when I was going back from the murder scene to the briefing room to tell my team what was going on, you needed to get them immersed in that scene and what it was telling them. And it was hard at the beginning to describe that before you could get your photos back really quickly and have them up. And, and we got better as time went on. And, you know, you're almost live streaming your whole murder scene then, aren't you? But, yeah. So your briefing room would have, I mean, I've done murders with eight people sat in there and I've done them with 80. So it just depends the scale of it, the challenges with it and who's around. So all these different incident rooms, they, they can interlink them. So we just had a little bit for Melanie Road because um, it wasn't, you know, it was a, a back shelf inquiry, if you like, when I was there. What not elevated it? <laughs> not in my mind, obviously. But no, not in your mind, but what elevated it? Because look, time, money, budgets, resources, you know, there's not, it's, and it's a case that is now uh, over 25 years old, right? Yeah. So after the initial bit with the TV appeals when, you know, it was thought maybe they'd found the killer and then obviously they hadn't, everyone loses interest then, don't they? But it's a really difficult thing to describe. And, you know, people often ask me, why did you think this? But I was absolutely convinced as soon as that first good suspect was eliminated that I was going to find the killer of Melanie Road. I genuinely didn't know if he was going to be dead or alive. But I was something in my stomach, in my belly, told me I was going to be the one to find him. And sometimes, you know, like when you get that amazing sense of elation and excitement, and I'd feel that like bubbling up inside me and then I'd have to press it back down because it's like, well, I haven't found him yet, but I just know I'm going to. So when it came three years later and I had that conversation with the superintendent about how, you know, he'd be dead if he didn't give it to me, 
I'd been working on the case for three years then. I'd had all those index cards. So there's 12,000 names in the system. I'd had all those put on computer because it wasn't a computerized case back in the day. Uh, I'd had all the paperwork brought across to the instant room. So I had loads of cabinets now filled with 30,000 documents. Um, I had a couple of people dedicated to the cause. And then I basically harassed, bullied, and generally bribed people to come and work and do things for me when I needed things doing in amongst the other jobs that they were working on. Hey, talk about the role too, uh, because you mentioned this, uh, the indexers, because you talk about you had index cards and stuff. I mean, talk about a manually intensive, labor intensive process, right? Yeah. So, you know, you go and buy yourself a new pair of shoes or trainers, sneakers, is that what you call them out there? Sneakers? And you got your shoe box. And imagine that box is then filled with lots of little like flashcards that you might use to revise if you're studying for exams. And they're all in alphabetical order. And back in 1984, the name of every single person that came into that inquiry, they had a card filled out and on it, and you call them indexers because it was cross-referenced with their statement, with their personal descriptive form. If they had a car, there was another index card created for their car, their address where they lived, and there were cards for the addresses. And everything was all done manually, so it could all be cross-referenced manually. But of course, it's really difficult. You can't search it. So I got my indexers, who are generally all ladies. There's a couple of guys in there, but their job is to input into the computer. And so in amongst what we call, I know it sounds ridiculous, live murders because the victims are dead. But in amongst that, when they allegedly had some downtime, I was harassing them saying, I need all these cards put on the computer. And there's 12 and a half thousand nominals. It was painful. It took over 12 months to get it done. Wow. I did moan a lot. But yeah. <laughs> the squeaky wheel, you know, as they say, squeaky wheel. Yeah. So we had all that. So we had it all there. Everything was there then. And in amongst my other work, my other jobs, murders that I was running, I was always doing Melanie Road and always trying to find other opportunities to progress it. So out of a, out of, if you divided your work just into percentages, you know, was 80, 85, 90% of your time doing other stuff and 10% Melanie or how did you divide? Yeah, your- no, that's probably about right. Um, but I do something on Melanie nearly every day. You know, if it's only 10 minutes or just chasing stuff or thinking about stuff. Yeah. And and talk to about talking with the mother because maintaining contact. One thing I've always been impressed with the British police. One of the things you guys do, you have a family liaison officer. There's always some contact. But they had been told before, oh, we're going to solve this case or we've got the killer and stuff. I mean, they have been let down. Uh, I don't want to say it not pejoratively, but they had been let down. People get the, you know, it's, it's, they get the expectation. They're excited that, yeah, we've got the guy. And then you don't. And it's like, you know, it, it's tough to manage expectations, especially in a case that's uh, going on 25, you know, over 25 years now. Yeah, it's exhausting for them, isn't it? I think, to be honest. And I went to meet the family. So I met Jean, Melanie's mum, early on, 2009-10, when I first started working on it, and her son, Adrian. And just... And like you say, it was a bad news delivery, actually. It was about, oh, yeah, I know we told you about it's a really good suspect. Well, he's not a really good suspect anymore. It's not him. And I was just, I'd gone, I'd start to go and see them. And when I was chatting to Jean in particular, uh, it became evident that she didn't really know very much about the investigation. So back in the 1980s, you know, I've already 
explained it was very male dominated so yeah there were family liaison officers then and in fact she did have a, a woman who went in as well used to go and get her shopping and all that stuff for her but you know the thing that struck me really at the very beginning was she was talking to me one day and she said you know they when Melanie was killed they weren't going to let me go and see her body at the mortuary they were going to take her husband because blokes went and did that but not the mum and she said you know I just went mad she said I bloody gave birth to her and I'm bloody well going to see her in death as well and don't you dare tell me otherwise and I thought god you're a really strong woman Jean aren't you I really liked her fire in her belly and she'd had she's had such a difficult life living with this amongst other things and I found her really really inspirational and easy to talk to so I'd just start going a bit more often and as I was doing stuff at work around it and whatever it was, even if it was just putting 12,000 names on the computer and then I'd tell her about my next harebrained idea as to how I was going to find the killer, I just told her I was convinced I was going to do it. And she's like, great. And her son, Adrian, you know, he sat there and he's like, oh, yeah, well, Julie, thanks very much, you know, and it's nice to have somebody who's interested. But we've had any one of a number of detectives through our front door and they've all said the same. And he just said, basically, I'm done with it and I don't want to see you again I don't want to talk to you again I don't want you to ring me or email me until you find the killer and it was just like that and I was like okay fair enough I'll give you a shout when he turns up then and that's how we left it and I didn't ever have any contact with him again for many years um, but I could understand where he was coming from it was tough it was really tough but when you would go to visit Gene now typically he would be there but he stopped coming right or he would leave yeah he'd leave yeah. Oh, hi, Julie. Nice to see you. I'm off now. It's like, bye, Adrian. See you again. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, you know, you can understand his position. I, 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 could, I can understand it. Just uh, you, you get your hopes up and then you get disappointed. Yeah. And it, it's just taken its toll on them, to be honest. And so I just go and see Jean and we'd have tea and biscuits. You know, one day I went to go and take her out. We used to go out to the pub for lunch. I went to take her out. I'm driving down into Bath. I was working in Bristol. And there's all these like police tape cordons across the road and they've like closed the road off. I was like, bloody hell, what's going on? So I pull up, talk to the PC, you know, on the cordon. I said, what's going on? He said, oh, you can't go through, boss. There's a, there's a bomb. What the fuck? There's a bomb. Where's there's a bomb? He said, yeah, just down there in Lansdowne, there's a World War II bomb that's unexploded and we've had to evacuate all the houses. We can't get through. <laughs> I was like, well, let me tell you something. I said, I'm going to see Jean to take her out. and." you're not going to stop me doing that. So tell me which way I could get to her house because that's what we're going to do. So I get, there, get down through the back roads to go and get Jean. I said, Jean, you're never going to believe this. I've had to fight off a World War II bomb to come and get you out today. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got to sneak out through the back roads to get out of the police cordons so we can go and have lunch. You're no, like, it just hasn't exploded in 60, 70 years. It's not going to go off in the next 30 minutes, pal. Just let me through. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. So anyway. <laughs> So we overcame World War II bombs just to get out and do stuff. <laughs> but yeah, I'd go and see her a lot and I'd just tell her, her stuff. And then I brought her into work and brought her to the incident room. Because like you say, our family liaison officers are brilliant. But um, uh, the one that Jean had, she'd left then, she'd retired. And I just sort of carried on because it was easier. I knew everything that was going on and we just did that. And we just became really, really good friends. I love her. I think she's amazing. Before we dive too much into the story, though, I want to bring up a line you said in your book, because you talk about taking a toll on the family. Things were taking a toll on you. And I know this is a little bit later, 
But you say, if I didn't have my children, I would seriously think about taking my life. Yeah. How serious of a thought was that? Really serious. And you know what did it is that um, it, it, I was just really at rock bottom. So I had I had a really, really difficult time for a lot of different reasons. And I just felt completely alone. Um, there was nobody to help me. I didn't know where to turn. I couldn't get out of the position I was in. And it was just like rock bottom. And in policing, we have a care helpline. So they're really good, like mental health support, counsellors, stuff like that. And I just, it takes a lot. So I'm not somebody, A, who cries easily, or B, who gets broken very easily. I count myself as quite a resilient individual. Um, But I was, and I ran this care line um, and spoke to a woman and just said, look, I just, I need help. I genuinely just need some help. I need to talk to somebody I need to try and make a plan to get myself out of the really bad place that I'm in. And her response was, well, you should just leave the house. I was like, well, I can't leave the house. I've got three children. Where am I going to go? I haven't got any money to go and rent another place. I've got a mortgage. I've got commitments. I haven't got any family I can go and stay with. I haven't got any friends. You know, it's just, it's not that straightforward. And she said, oh, well, you know, that's where it's up to you, isn't it? And basically had no comprehension at all of what was happening. Oh, honest to God. I was just, and I just sat there. I was literally, I was sat there in the valley with the dog, just looking at the trees, thinking, you know what? For two pins, I could just hang myself from that tree there and it would all be done. And that would be the end of it. And it really, really dark thoughts. And I'm not a dark thought person, definitely a glass half full, but it was a bad place to be. How much of the stress was work-related versus personal-related? Where was the majority of your stress coming from? I think the trouble is they all interlinger, don't they? Because so if you don't have any support or help at home, so I talk in the book as well. So, you know, I've got one kid on drugs. So people say, oh, he's only smoking cannabis. Well, personally, I think cannabis is the most dangerous drug, particularly now because it's so strong. It's like doing LSD. Skunk is really, really, it's it's the most dangerous drug. It's more dangerous than the class A powders because it has long-term psychological impact on them. Really, really bad. Um, So that's him. Uh, I've got issues in a relationship that obviously I can't really discuss here, but were really, really challenging. Um, I've got a daughter who was going away to, so your kids might go to college or university in the next state. She was going to the next, to Belgium. So, you know, halfway across Europe. And you've got to take a horse horse too. Yeah. And the horse, yeah. Mom, I'm going to go and work for this Olympic eventer. Yeah, good idea, darling. How's that? Belgium. Okay. Don't know how to transport a horse across Europe, but I'm sure we can work it out. And we did. And but then, there's some good beer in Belgium because I'm a huge Belgian beer fan. So you should have got some beer while you were there. I did actually. Hoogstraten bars were delicious with the left beer, as it's called, if that's how you pronounce it. Yeah. <laughs> it's a weak beer. It's a light. It's a. It's a. I know it's delicious. I love a beer. Uh, and then I've got Toby, my youngest boy, who was. Um, I mean, had been excluded in school since the age of seven diagnosed with dyslexia when he went to senior school at 11, 12, learned that pattern of behavior that if you're naughty, they just kick you out and you don't have to do any work. Uh, So constantly, every single week, being summons to school about what was I going to do with my disruptive child versus, well, what are you doing to understand it and help? Nothing. Um, 
And it was just impossible. It was impossible. And then work, you know, it's a demanding job. If you're head of a murder inquiry, you know, you're out. I'd go out. I'd get a call in the middle of the night. There's a murder. I'd go out Saturday morning, five o'clock Saturday morning. I'd write a note on the kitchen table to the kids saying, can you just please get your stuff at least to the washing machine? Do some homework. Walk the dog. I've gone to a murder in Bristol. I'll ring you later. And, you know, later is 12 o'clock at night you come home. It's not something that's easy. And those first 48 hours, three days of a murder inquiry are really, really intense. And then you've just got people moaning at you. And it's exhausting. So, yeah, it's not one thing or another. It's everything. It's trying to hold it all together. Yeah. And the reason I wanted to talk about that now versus later, it's because you're dealing with a lot of these things, but at the same time, you're committed to solving Melanie's case. So, you know, we talk about being persistent, man. I'd hate to have you on my ass. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm just going to go, who's on the case? Julian Mackay. And I'm yeah, giving, well, up, giving up, boss. Give up now. Give up yeah. now. So, um, but, but, but I'm glad you said that too, because that's kind of one of the for a long time, that was very taboo. I've lost more friends to suicide than I have in line of duty. All right. So, Julie, these were dark times, dark days. Um, and, and like you said, too, you know, when you work a murder case, you want to keep the the victim front and center. You get the picture. But it's got to be more than a picture that sustains you. What sustains you? What keeps you moving forward during this time? Which, like, in your own words, it's a shit time. I mean, if anything could go wrong, it's been going wrong for you, right? So how do, how do you sustain this? How do you keep this case moving forward? How do you keep the energy to keep investigating? Yeah, it's really difficult, isn't it, when you've got so many things happening. And for me, it wasn't any one thing. You know, work was hard, home was hard, kids were hard, everything was hard. But I just had this belief that I was going to find Melanie's killer. I mean, that was fundamental. Um, I'm really passionate about my work. Really, really enjoyed my job. You know, I had the best job ever. And just the relationship with Jean, she was so inspirational in everything. You know, if you think I'd had a shit time, you want to be her. She'd had a shit time. And yet she was still, I liken her in the book a lot to the Queen, you know, our lovely Queen who passed away last year, because she's always looks, um, got lots of dignity. But and you might think, oh, now looking at her little old lady, but underneath that surface, she's absolutely rock solid. And just the time I spent with her, A, was a bit of normality from what was a crazy time for me. And B, you'd sit there, her photographs of Melanie were there and she was just, I just found her inspirational. I can't really describe it any other way. I just found her the most amazing woman who was just lovely. What a strong lady, you know, and, and I mean, it's, it's, I love the fact that you're getting the strength from somebody who has suffered so much at a different level, you know, and the fact that she came through for you and got you back on the right track or helped you get back through the dark times back to where you needed to be. Yeah, she did. She did. It's kind of funny. She was doing more for you at that time, probably than maybe you were doing for her, right? Yeah, I did her ironing for her. She like counseled me. It was fine. <laughs> <laughs> Down there doing her riding as we were chatting. She'd be like, Oh, I can't cope with this at the moment. I said, Oh, don't worry, I'll do it for you, Jean. Yeah. So, yeah, we were great. We were great to each other. She's it's ironic brilliant. how it all came together. I know. It's meant to be, isn't it? Hey, it's fate. Yeah. So, it's really, really good. Let's talk about that now. Let's really dive into the case because I, I wanted to ask you um, 
Let, let's go back and talk about the original 1984 murder inquiry. See, here, that's the other thing, too. It's the terminology. I always fascinated with the British terminology. Here, we say it's a murder investigation. You call it an inquiry. It's like, I'd like to ask you a couple questions, you know? Yeah. That's, you know, but We're it's a murder. Very polite. <laughs> very polite. Before we tell you to fuck off and get off the little yellow line. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let, let's talk about the original case because you know and I know, Murph knows too, the original case, the original work that's done sets the tone for the solvability of the case, your your excitement to work the case. Let's talk about the original 84 case. Tell, you know, how, how was it done? Do you think it was done good? Yeah, they were absolutely fantastic. I can't describe how brilliant they were. And and that is what set the tone for this. And so we talk about in 1984, there was no DNA. So it was all down to blood and semen. Uh, so Melanie is stabbed 26 times and raped twice. So she's raped vaginally and orally. And all they did to preserve that scene and recover that material and keep it was what really enabled me to crack on and do my work. And when I say it was incredible, if, if we investigated homicides today like they did then, it would be second to none. They had a little cocktail stick. And there you go. The here's, the old, here's the old fart analogy. Steve, you <laughs> might remember a cocktail stick. Well, I said to you guys, because like, I know you're quite old and all this, and you probably oh, remember wait, the wait, wait a minute. Uh, <laughs> well, no, yeah, did you do this? <laughs> we've, we have great cameras. I can't believe we're coming across so old. <laughs> I still have all my hair. How, how old do you think Murph is? I mean, north of 80 or south of 80? Oh, definitely north northeast. <laughs> no, but if I'm teasing you, I gotta go. I gotta go. I'm sorry, I'm out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's got to go put on his sandals with his socks and go Wait, down to get the blue go take my medications and take a drive on the yellow line. He's <laughs> telling us he's getting his speedos on and going to be a beach bum. There he you can't go. wait. There you no go. speedos. Oh my god. Okay, you just ruined lunch. All right, <laughs> There's a site on. you'll never crack, get out. Of as your I mind. say, crack on, Judy. Crack yeah, on. crack on. <laughs> So they had their little cocktail sticks and and today when we do swabs we have like cotton earbuds you know that's what they look like although longer um but they had a little bit of cotton on the end of these literally like a bit of fabric and they went and swabbed every single one of 86 blood spots and these blood spots went on for hundreds and hundreds of yards you know all the way down the street and then they'd stop and then down some old steps really old steps Bath. I mean, Bath is Roman. You know, that's how old it is. It's ancient. How big, of a, how big of a perimeter did they make around that crime scene? I mean, it sounds like they went out a couple hundred meters. I mean, maybe farther. Oh, further than that. Yeah, you're, you're talking, I mean, I reckon all the way down around there is a good quarter, half a mile where those blood spots went on that trail. Yeah. And, wow. And then they, they grouped them. So, um so they did their testing on it and it could only ever be blood grouping and it was bizarrely the same blood group, so both group A, but the clever scientists that I still don't profess to understand, they managed to break it down and you could show the proteins in it and by doing that you could then discern between the two types of blood and one was identified as being Melanie's and to make sure they knew whose was whose, they marked it on a chart on a map. And Melanie's blood was marked in orange, so the little blood spots, which actually showed probably where she'd walked before she was killed. And his blood spots, the offenders, as he's literally running away, he must have got injured in the attack, uh, were marked in green. And so from 1984 onwards, it was called the Green Blood Trail. And people were eliminated or arrested because they were green blood or not green blood. And they worked out that that 
green blood, as they now call it and still call it, only belonged to 3% of the population. So it was really, really rare. And the other thing that they could do was the semen, uh, so back in the 1980s when you didn't have DNA, to work out if that was your potentially your semen left at the scene or not, they could uh, work out what blood group you were. So uh, just amazing science even then. Wow. So, I mean, the, so the, as, you're, as you're doing this, as you're collecting all of this, at what point, even during those three years, but now that you've got the case, do you feel like you've got everything organized to where now you can do a proper inquiry, as you say? I mean, what level of confidence do you have that, that you have everything you need to move forward now? I think, yeah, I reckon, three, yeah, three, four years in maybe. I mean, I've always felt confident that we had everything. It took, it definitely took a good three to four years, though, to have it in one place. We reviewed all the exhibits. So um, we went back through and everything that we had. And even then, that's when we found, you know, Melanie's hair um, that I didn't even know that we had and managed to give those locks, you know, to, to her family. But we tracked every single exhibit. We tracked everything that had happened to it from the minute she was found until we'd got it back out of whatever storage facility it was in. And some stuff was at the lab. Yeah, we would call that chain of custody here, but as you're tracking yeah, the exhibits, the exactly. one thing, the, but the one biggest one that's going to be very integral to this, was it called the M8? Uh, what was the name of M8. that one? Yeah. yeah. And um, M8 was, so that was actually what that was, was on her trousers, the semen that gave the best profile for the DNA subsequently came from M8, which was um, a mark on her trousers, a semen stain on her trousers, and it had been cut out and sent to the lab. And so M8 was the one with the full profile on it. Uh, the We'd done subsequent DNA work around the swabs from her mouth. So the semen in her mouth, eventually through some more DNA work, as it got more sensitive, we were able to say it was the same offender, that had raped her orally and vaginally because up until then we didn't know we only had a partial profile and whilst you could say it's the same blood group you couldn't necessarily say it's the same person so that was quite a big turning point really understanding what had happened to her with the sequence of events of her clothing going on and off and when she was dressed and undressed hey, let me important. ask you a question about that though because you mentioned that i mean they've got semen in her vagina they've got semen in her mouth um that that either says that either he's able to ejaculate very quickly in a short amount of time, or this was a sustained attack to be able to, you know, ejaculate one place and then wait and then ejaculate another. So my interpretation of it, and, you know, this is it, isn't it? 25, 26, 28 years later, was that he has, he, I think, my sequence of events that I basically put my hypotheses on looking at it was that he'd met her. The prob marks in the back were that he had forced her to go somewhere off the street. I think that he then raped her and took her clothes off and then got her dressed again and then stabbed her, fatally stabbed her because there's the stab wounds. So we had all the clothing matched to all the stab wounds on the body. So you could see that the stab attack had gone through her clothing. And then at point of death... And the reason I say at point of death or when she's dead, he's raped her again orally because um, 
as anybody who's investigated any sex offences with oral sex will know, that really, really quickly, once you get semen in the mouth, if you're still alive, um, either it's spat out or it's swallowed or it dissipates with the saliva that's present in your mouth. So it's usually very, very difficult to get any um, quantity of semen out that's even enough to give you a DNA profile. So the fact that they got that suggested to me it was at point of death or on death and she obviously hadn't swallowed. So that was how that sort of worked and the whole getting her dressed afterwards as well. There was blood had clearly dropped from when she was standing up on her feet and then the shoe had been put back on on top and you know blood spots on the shoe as well so yeah it's 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 quite harrowing when you're thinking about it as to what she must have been going through really harrowing versus that clinical approach that as a detective you need to understand what's happened so you can maximize your best opportunities to get more evidence yeah People would think that you're cold-hearted sometimes when you're out there, but it's no. You got to be very clinical. You just got to lock everything else away, and it, you've just got to because uh, it's if not, you're you're going to be on an um, <laughs> on a roller coaster of emotions. You know, just up, down, up, down. You to to solve the case, you can't do that. I mean, you might do that later, right? But the problem with cops is when you'd put it in that little lockbox, but you would never deal with it. And and you have to. I mean, the the three of us are all parents, and we all have daughters. You know, and you if you if you think about it too long and realize that could have been one of our kids, you know, that's why you have to compartmentalize these things to stay clinical or scientific or however whatever word you want to use there. You do. And in fact the way I dealt with it was that they they need people like me and you guys who are really good at our job, who are not gonna let our judgment get clouded because we're focused on being professionals and doing what needs to be done. That doesn't mean that we don't care, because actually we do care passionately about it. And it doesn't mean that we don't get affected, because we do at some point. But when we're there, you know, for that victim, we've got to do the best we can. And crying over it is not doing the best you can. Understanding it is doing the best you can. Let's talk about now that you've taken over, you've got this, uh, the previous SIO, SIO is gone. You're now like acting SIO. You've just claimed the mantle. You're, you're taking over. You're not asking anybody. You're just in charge. What do you have to do to make this thing move along? How do you create the sense of urgency? Because it's, a, it's a, over 25 years old at this point now. It's, it, you know, we, don't hate, we hate to call it a cold case. It's like open unsolved. But still, it's 25 years old and you've got murder inquiries coming in. You've got murders that have just happened that have to take precedence over a 25-year case. How do you keep that going? Yeah, so I was always looking at different ways of um, keeping it interesting and how we're going to solve it. So I'd been to a presentation which was on a a guy who'd, uh, over a period of 25 years, been offending in South London, breaking into houses, burgling them, and raping the elderly victims. And you called him the Night Stalker. See, we had a Night Stalker. You called him the Night Stalker. Yeah, he's called the Night Stalker, yeah. Well, that's what they called him, yeah. Uh, I don't think he's quite like your Night Stalker. I think your guy was probably a bit worse, but... Sad to say. But yeah, he's um, so a really great detective in London, a guy called Colin Sutton was the one behind that. And he'd done a presentation and his DI was talking about in 90% of these stranger assaults, so whether it's a rape or murder, the offenders usually in our system, they've usually come in somewhere. And in fact, it goes right back to the Yorkshire Ripper in the late 70s, which was a massive case, you know, killed all those prostitutes uh, up in the north there. And that was where the first use of geographical profiling was actually. I'm very familiar with that case. I actually have two books on geographical profiling right here, one by a British man. There you go. 
And in fact, the Yorkshire Ripper, because he was in the system, but they hadn't linked him up with different policing areas, was why the whole homes indexing system came into being and the computers were invented. Was that, if I remember right, Holmes stood for the Home Office Major Lead Inquiry System? Was that it? Uh, yeah. Linked. Link. Home Office Link Major Inquiry System. Yeah. Okay. So that you could, uh, so there was another case uh, in the southeast where five prostitutes were murdered across two police force areas and um, more recently, and they could run the incident rooms, but they could all see each other's information. So they could run different incident rooms for each of the five murders, but then they all interlinked because they were all linked. So yeah, brilliant bit of kit. So, yeah, so the Yorkshire Ripper, the offender was in the system, you know, so it goes right back to there. So I was convinced the offender's in the system. So I then get my indexes. I'd got my specialists in, so the geographical profiler. Although I have to say there, uh, Morgan, that the geographical profiler, he basically told me that the offender's going to live within five miles of the area. Well, I'm not kidding. Bath is probably only about 10 miles across to get all the houses. I've so got that was like a, that was an easy guess. <laughs> I was like, no shit. I could have told you that. Even I knew that from my witness. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, it's fine. So we had him, we had psychological profilers and they helped us devise a matrix. Um, so we could prioritize our 8,000, eight and a half thousand names that were in the system. And then I got the indexers to apply the matrix to all those and everybody over 50, come on in, you're going to be swabbed. So that's what I did. You said over 50, but we're not referring to age. You had a point system, right? Yeah, we did. So the most they could score was 72. So anybody who scored over 50 points up to the 72, that was it. We were going to swab them. And and how did you go about doing that? Because you've got eight and a half thousand names. Not not everybody's alive. Not everybody's in the country because you talk about four Arab males. That was part of your concern, too. What was your success rate of getting people to agree to be swabbed? You know, and, and what were the what were the parameters, the boundaries that the swab could be used for? Yeah. So, I mean, there's there's lots of different challenges there, really. Number one is getting the staff to do it because they're busy people and you need to keep them interested. So whenever they were going out the door, I'd be like, where are you going? What inquiry are you on? Oh, we've got a swab to do there. Or we'd get them all grouped in areas in the country and then send somebody up there to Scotland or Yorkshire or wherever to go and swab them. So really, I just bamboozled the teams into doing it. Then um, the the other thing was if they didn't if they didn't agree to it on the first one, because they were all consensual, so they had to consent, and they were only the swab they were providing was only being compared against this one crime scene, not any others. So we couldn't do a random search. And if they didn't consent, we did a second visit. And then if they didn't consent there, and then generally I'd ring them up. But we only had seven who'd refused in the UK. And if they refused, then we were going to do covert swabbing to get their DNA. So we'd put You only spade. had seven refuse? Yeah. That's yeah. pretty damn good. Well, was that because many of them were reluctant until Julie Mackay gets on the phone and says, look, mate, this is how it's going to happen. Well, she came out with the chalk and the body tape, you know. Yeah, don't that's, make that's me... right, yeah. You know what I said to, to my you. boss? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I said, so I had really good teams working for me. You know, they could talk anybody into anything. But if they didn't, I'd just read them up and say, look, you know what? If you're not going to consent, we are going to follow you. 
Uh, and if you want to be looking over your shoulder for the next three or four months, wondering which day I've got my surveillance team following you to see if you drop something or spit on the ground or do whatever, that's up to you. But I am going to hunt you down like a long dog until we get your DNA. Because you saying you're not the murderer is not good enough. And some would say, oh, my God, I don't want that. That's a breach of my human rights. I'd be like, yeah, whatever. You know, I can breach your human rights. We've got stuff to protect it, but that's fine. Did, so, did you get yeah. many complaints? Only one. And that wasn't actually about me. That was about somebody else. But, yeah, that's fine. No kidding. That's yeah. that's a, that's an impressive track record. So how how long did it take you? I mean, well, continue on that process because are you really going to collect 8,500 swabs? So we did, um, so we were at the stage, I think we'd had 2,600 that we'd done. And, um, and, th and there were others that were abroad, you know, so there's one guy who we found, and he was coming back through Heathrow before going somewhere else. I was like, that's fine. We can swab you at Heathrow. So I sent a team up to Heathrow, literally to get him in the departure lounge before he went on his flight again. You also had a you also had a guy in uh, custody in France that you had to go through Interpol. Uh, yeah, Montez. Yeah, Interpol. They were so difficult. That was really in the early stages. Someone said, "Oh, you want to look at him?" So he murdered a thirteen-year-old girl. He'd abducted her from a, a, an English girl. He'd abducted her from a youth hostel and taken her and raped her and killed her. And um, and that makes and that gets you excited too because you go, that, "This guy's a good." I mean, this guy's a good suspect. Of course he is. He's a great suspect. He likes to rape and murder young girls. He's perfect, isn't he? And his DNA wasn't on the UK system. So that was another reason he was a really good suspect. So, yeah. But, oh, God, the French, they denied that he was even in their prison. We're like, of course he's in your prison. Look, it's all over the national news. Check Google. As he knows, you cannot trust as he knows. It knows, you know, blah, you know. Oh, my God. Anyway, eventually, we did get there with them. Uh, and then they weren't going to release his DNA profile to us. And, yeah, it just took month, nine months it took to work through that lot. But, of course, when we got the profile, it wasn't him. So, yeah, crack on. And, uh, yeah, and also the other thing I did was I brought Jean into the instant room. So we do quite a lot with victims' families. Like if they want to come and meet the murder detectives, they can. Um, we bring them in the instant room. And quite a lot of people like to do that. A, they want to feel like they're part of it. They want to know what's going on. Um, and B, they want to thank you, which is ridiculous because, you know, we should be thanking them for putting up with us being so intrusive and uh, and just looking out for them, really. So. I'm working on a project right now, but I've been talking to victim families, and you just hit upon something. One of the things that they feel, they feel helpless. It's like, I don't feel like I can do anything. If I do something, I'm, maybe I'm getting in your way. They want to feel like they're doing something constructively to contribute to the resolution of the case. Of course they do. And them coming in to those incident rooms is more impactive than anything else. You know, there's, they, I've, I've known victims' families come in for my whole career, right from that very first case, you know, back on, when I was the gopher, the victims' family came in then all the way through. And, yeah, they just, it's really, it's good for the team to see, and it's good for them to see. What so, puts yeah, a so face I've, on it? it put, they see the face of the yeah. victim or the victim's right. family, and yeah. they, they, it's real. Yeah. But what was lovely when I brought Jean in, so there's two things. First of all, she was never invited to the instant room back in the 80s because only her husband was invited. So, you know, that was really important. And secondly, when I took her in, you know, and first of all, we went, you know, I talked about that we've got that room where they all sit and all their banks of desks. You know, there's 100 detectives work in that room. 
and I'm like, oh, Jean, this is John. You know, he's um, he's been helping get the case papers, and this is Dave. He's been out swabbing, and oh, this is Rich and Ollie, and they've travelled right up north getting some swabs, and this is Natalie, and she's been doing the exhibits, and um, you know, this is um, Val and Leslie who have been doing the indexing, and everybody that we encountered had been working on the case in one form or another by then. There wasn't anybody in that team that hadn't somehow been sucked in to do something. And then I took her in because I was doing a briefing. And uh, so just my core team, but it's about 15, I guess. And um, so she just sat at the back of the room and we did the briefing and we just talked about what we were doing and what our focus and direction was. And she's just so amazing. And it just makes you feel like, this is what it's all about. So that's a great motivator for the team, especially, like you say, 28 years on or whatever it is. Well, and for the mother, it gives her comfort to know that her daughter has not been forgotten. Yeah, never forgotten. And then the next big milestone was the 30th anniversary, so 30 years. You know, so what are we going to do for the anniversary? So just like I went out on the streets of Bath. I got Jean to write a letter and Karen, her daughter, and it's a really, really moving letter to the people of Bath, you know, basically saying, if you know something or if somebody said something, this is your chance to come forward and tell the police. It's really moving. And I just, uh, I stood there outside the Roman Baths in the city centre and said, big poster of Melanie, this girl was murdered 30 years ago today. You know, somebody must know something. And, and my biggest thing was, if he is still alive, how can it be fair that he has lived his life for 30 years and she hasn't lived hers? Yeah, so. But from a that, human perspective on it. Yeah, it does. It's, you know, how can it be? I didn't know if he's dead or alive then. So we had another four names come forward, but they were all eliminated, of course. That's what I'm saying. So you, you did get a little <laughs> oh bit of. Oh, my God. Yeah, you, you got a little bit of act, activity out of it, but did but did did you? I mean, I know you're going to say you didn't, but really down deep, did you kind of go? It's been thirty years. We just got four names. It's not them. It's like, did you still have the same belief you had when you started that you were going to solve this case? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, it was interesting because one of the journalists, when I was doing like all the TV stuff, then ready for that thirtieth anniversary weekend because I got it on every news channel I could. Um, she said to me, so Julie, you're the first detective I've ever spoken to who I truly believe is actually going to solve a case. You know, she said, I do loads of these sort of appeals, but I've never really come across somebody who's got that belief and I believe you as well. So, of course, I rang her up subsequently. <laughs> said you believed in me. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, and then, so we'd done, I'd done more familial work. So I did a lot of familial work on this case. So talk about that a little bit too, because you had, you had to go to the police college, right? To get approval, to spend money. Cause it wasn't cheap initially to do it. No. It's like 20,000 pounds, right? To run a, yeah. a familial run. What tell everybody what a familial, I think they're starting to get used to it. Now we had a cold case on Stephen Smith, a detective out of Toronto where they did a familial uh, forensic genealogy, you know, to do that. But t let everybody know what the familial piece is. Yeah, it's a fantastic bit of work. So basically all our DNA is different. And, you know, you can look at my DNA and I get, so at that time, our DNA stuff was on, say, we used 20 alleles. So if you had a bar chart, imagine a bar chart, and there's 10 points on that bar chart that come from your dad, and then 10 points on that bar chart that come from your mum. Uh, and my sister or brother will have some of those same bars on their bar charts as well. And so you can say by doing familiar work, whether they're the 
they do a, they do a run, so they look at all the DNA that they've got in the system, and they'll say, oh, we've got Julie Mackay's DNA here, and the likelihood ratio of her being related to the offender, either on a parent, child, or a sibling list, so mother, father, um, or brother, sister, is... 44,000 to one. That was the first run that we did. That was uh, the person at the top of the list, they call it a screamer because the one below that is something like 17,000 to one. So, you know, you say, okay, that looks good. So who's Julia Mackay's? And because of the age, we knew it had to be a dad. So who's her dad? What does he look like? Uh, And then we go and swab him if we didn't know him. Um, and we did a lot of that work. We did a hundred of those on the first run. Um, I did another run where we rejigged it with geographical profiles, where we did another 30. And, you know, everyone I spoke to nationally who'd done familial DNA work, they're like, oh, yeah, you'll get them straight away. They'll be in the top 10. It's great. And I was like, yeah, great. Oh, it's really exciting. That's why I want to spend 20 grand. And, of course, we never got them in the top 10. We didn't get them in the top bloody 100. What the hell's going I was on? I going to say, your screamer... <laughs> kind of fizzled out right <laughs> yeah it was it just yeah they were screaming off down the street <laughs> I, I think was it was it that first familial run where they came back they had somebody who's like a 97.3 percent match or something it's like we got him we got him only yeah. to find out it wasn't it could be 97 it can be 99.9 percent if it's not 100 percent, it's not them uh and 97.5 percent is the same as one percent i subsequently learned it's just the scientists. They tell, oh, it's 97.5%. Oh, my God, that's so exciting. It's going to be him. It's going to be him. We just need to get like a you know true sample. And then it's not. It's like, why do you tell us it's 97% then if it's nowhere near? And he said, oh, well, that's just what the stats say. We have to tell you. I said, well, that's bloody nonsense. Don't bother. Either tell me it's a hit or don't. <laughs> and honestly, I had hundreds of emails, you know. The samples, because we used to send them off in 25 batches at a time. The 25 samples that you have sent are not a match to MRA. I was like, okay, thank you. So, yeah, and then I'd applied for another run, uh, and they were really difficult about it. And, and in fact, it's really interesting because just on my phone, so the reason I managed to get my last run is because um, uh, a guy called Sean Memory, who'd done some familiar work, who's literally just texted me on my phone about wanting some help with something. Love him. Uh, he's the one who fought my corner for me, saying, you know, since Julie did our last run, there's a million more names on the database. I got hit on a stranger rape straight away. You've got to let her do it again. And he was such a good ally for me. He was just amazing. And so they're like, yeah, okay. And then when they looked, it was really cheap. It was like four grand or something to do it. And I was like, crikey, you've told me i can't do this for all these years because it was expensive and it's not <laughs> and you had a but you've got a unique way to do it because look look in a department here let's say we've got where i live at loudon county sheriffs they either have the budget or they don't it's like they go do it like there's some federal resources but you really you have a you've got a in, kind of an entrenched bureaucracy there i mean you had to go right up to the policing college you had to go through a review board i mean it's like you had to go through all of these layers to go are you guys really interested in solving a crime? I know. And then they lost it, didn't they? They lost the paperwork. <laughs> I was on another murder. We had four murders in a week. It was really busy. I was like, oh, I haven't heard back from that. And I like rang up my contact at the college. I said, what's happened with this familiar run? Oh, I don't know, Julie. I'll come back to you. And she's like, oh, we seem to have lost the paperwork. I was like, what the fuck? How can you lose the paperwork? I said, don't worry. I've got a copy. I'll send it to you now. <laughs> So and I they did. would reject things if you had a word out of place or missed a field, right? It was like yep. mine, the smallest yeah. thing they would reject. Oh, so irritating. I can't, yeah. I mean, honestly, yeah. So many people had to sign off on it and then they lost it. Anyway, 
luckily I have my copy, so I sent it to them. And then six weeks later, they sent the list back and, you know, and Gary was looking at it and he's like, oh, look at this, Julie. I was like, what? He said, we got the list back. I was like, we're both really, Gary and I are the only two that are really excited about this. Everyone else is bored by now because I've been going on about it for so long. What are we, five, six, seven years in? And um, he said, we've got a new screamer at the top of the list. There's a new name. I was like, who is it? And uh, her name, Claire Hampton. And she'd only been arrested a few months earlier. So if I'd have done the familial run when I wanted to, she would not have featured. So I believe fate intervened. And he said, oh, I'll ring her up and find out who her dad is. So he rings her up and he says, oh, her dad lived in Bath. He lives in Bristol now. And uh, he's the right age. I was like, oh, great. Quick, let's get a swab. And like Gary only works three days a week then. And he's like, oh, I'm not available on Friday. He rings him up and the guy agrees to give a swab. He said, oh, I can't do it on Friday. I'm looking after my grandchildren. I'm like, Gary, where's your dedication to this job? <laughs> really? So Don't he goes on the Monday. Exactly. You think you'd take the kids with him, wouldn't you? I've taken the kids to a murder scene before now and I've been on call and they've been in the car. It's fine. Sounds like Derek Maltz is dead. <laughs> One of our other episodes, the his dad, Derek Maltz, his dad was a legend in DEA. He took him on a surveillance and the radio number, he said, oh, this is seven and a half. You know, I'm calling. Kid's like nine or ten years old. He's out That's perfect cover though, isn't it? I'm with him on that, to be honest. Nobody picked up on him. <laughs> I think that's a great plan. So, yeah, so um, and so Gary goes and meets him just in a car park from work. He's a painter, decorator. And he's like, just like all the others that we saw, because I'm like, what was he like, Gary? And he's like, yeah, he's just a normal bloke. You know, he's giving me a swab. And I did say to him, you know, because he said, they, they always ask, don't they, how long before we know the results, which is usually about six weeks because we sent them off in batches. And, um, and Gary said, well, you know, of course, you could always confess right now if you're the murderer and, you know, make it much quicker. And it, he never said anything, did he? And then off we go and we send it off and then the results come back. Before you get to the results, because um, you had talked earlier before about the, the other detective, they're always in the system. Yeah. The guy that you're swabbing now, was he in the system? No, he bloody wasn't. Just swabbed like 3,000 people on that. Wow. <laughs> and he wasn't in the system. That's the first thing we checked for. Yeah. But still, it kept everyone motivated for a couple of years, didn't it? <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Who goes out and swabs? And what was the guy's name again? Gary went to swab him, and his name's Christopher Hampton. So Gary goes out to swab him, um, but normally it takes six weeks. So now let's walk walk through, let's go into some more detail about this now. Yeah, so we actually got the result back in um, in just over four weeks. Um, so he, you know, Hampton will be expecting it in about six weeks. And I was on holiday, I'd been away, and I'd come back. And, you know, my life is still, it's absolute clusterfuck is the only way you can probably describe it. So... My oldest son, the night before, uh, had a hissy fit and smashed up his room, smashed the mirror, smashed the furniture because he's on drugs and, yeah, life's tough, apparently. I thought, God, you want to be on my side of the fence? That's tough. So I'm there clearing all that up. I've got my daughters out in Belgium now. So, you know, every three months I'm driving across Europe to Belgium to go and visit her to make sure she's all right with her horse. And I've got Toby, who's um, I'm still going to school every week for him for, to be excluded or whatever nonsense they're going on about. And as I'm clearing up all the glass and everything, I get a phone call from Gary. I'm like, all right, Gary, I'm on leave this week. You know, they'll probably be better off in work. And he's like, Julie, we've got a hit. 
I'm like, what do you mean you got hit? Hit on what? <laughs> this is how like out of the zone I am. He's like, on rhodium. I'm like, fucking hell, rhodium? Probably said Jesus fuck, actually, because that's what you usually say. And uh, I'm like, who is it? And he said, it's Hampton. I said, what? The screamer, the one above the screamer. And he's like, yeah. I was like, oh, my fucking God. I just, I couldn't believe it. I really just couldn't believe it. I was so excited. I was like, right, I'm coming in. What's happening? And he's like, oh, yeah, because I couldn't get hold of you earlier. Liz Tunks, who was our superintendent then, she's um, she's called everybody in. We're getting all the arrest teams ready. I said, right, I'll be there in 40 minutes. And I put the phone down on Gary. And honestly, I just sat there and I just thought, you know, my God, Melanie, we've done it. We've done it for you. It's like I could feel she was in the room with me. It was just incredible feeling. A most incredible feeling after all that time. So 31 years after he's killed her. And, you know, and I've been working on this for nearly seven years now. Just me personally, to say nothing of everyone else before. Oh, that had great. to be like the weight of the world lifted off your shoulders right then. Oh, it's just like, yeah. Yeah, but you know, but out of the frying pan into the fire because your work is just beginning now. I know, yeah. So I go to work. As I go to work, the arrest teams are going out and I'm like, oh. Do I go to see him arrested and arrest him or do I go to my teams and run the inquiry? And um, I wanted to see his face, but, you know, my place was with the team. So I like running upstairs and I go in because they're all in the briefing room just getting ready. Everyone's mustered and it was full. So if you think, you know, I've had like four, six, eight, ten people for the last four years in that briefing room on this inquiry. Now I've got 60. And I just went in. I was like, yeah, we've done it. <laughs> They're like, yay. <laughs> and you're still a detective sergeant, right? I was a detective inspector. In fact, I was a detective chief inspector then. So I've been okay, promoted. So you've been promoted a couple times during yeah. this. Well, I was, yeah, I was an acting chief inspector. And the reason I was acting was because I'd failed two boards um so oh i'd passed one and to be honest they sh the guy who got it one he beat me by one point and then six weeks later got promoted again and they should have just said julie you sat the board you passed it It was only six weeks ago we'll give it to you uh but no they wanted me to do a whole new thing again i did another one where um, that was a clusterfuck of an interview. I've been in Crown Court all day on a murder trial. We'd lost the murder charge on a legal technicality with a judge who basically knew about fraud and not murder. And I was really stressed about that. It was a five-hander gang torture job. And I said, so I went from dealing with all that in court to go and sit at a promotion board at six o'clock in the evening. <laughs> it's like, that's a bit stupid, wasn't it? But there we are. And failed, unsurprisingly, because I was thinking about my victim in court. Uh, I'd failed another one on a paper sift. So, yeah, so I was just just acting, but that's where I was. And that's relevant because I subsequently move on from that. But, yeah. It's funny you should mention that, too, because we go back. Um, are you familiar with the Green River Killer, Gary Ridgway? Yes. We actually had Dave Reichert on, the lead investigator, and we talked about him. And he was sheriff of King County at the time. And when they identified him, same way, they came in with an envelope, said, we've got him. Yeah. He says, I already know the name, Gary Ridgway. He was so tempted to go out to the arrest team. But like you, he said, no, my proper place is back here. But it, that had to be hard after all that time and all of that work. I know. Yeah, because you want to be there. But actually, you know, I knew the job. I knew what needed to be done. Uh, and my place was there. So we did the briefing. So that was great. Gave everyone all their jobs to do because it's hard work, isn't it? That's when it starts. And um, and then, of course, I'm with the family liaison officers. Because my other thing is, of course, I want to see Jean. But, I, you know, uh, and so I'm briefing them. 
and I'm standing next to them as they're ringing Jean. And they ring her up and say, oh, Jean, um, we need to come and see you tonight. Uh, is that okay? And she's like, oh, no, I'm going out. <laughs> what do you mean you're going out? <laughs> said, Jean, it's really important that you don't go out tonight. We really, really need to come and see you. And she used to go to choir. And she's like, oh, I've got choir tonight. Well, do you think you could just not go, please, just this once? Oh, she says, all right then. And it's like, and we're going to ring Adrian and get him to come round. And she's like, oh, are you? Why is that then? I said, well, we've got some really, really good news. Okay. And then ring Adrian. And uh, he's like, Julie, I've told you I don't want to talk to you again. And I don't want to hear from you until you've got some proper good news. And it was just like, Adrian, why do you think, you know, we're ringing you? And I can, even now it makes me choke because I can hear him still to this day choking up as he just realises that we've got the person that killed his little sister. And he's like, oh my God. And it's like, you just, you need to go to your mum's so that we can see you together and then we can tell you what's happened. And yeah, and her, and her sister, Karen, you know, and, and telling her as well, because it just, it's absolutely broken, Karen, the murder of her sister. And yeah. It's really, really, God, that's, it's such a privilege to be able to tell a family that, that you found the killer of their daughter or sister. I've just listened to you describe it. I've got chill bumps here. Just, uh, yeah, well, that's why I'm wearing a sweater, Murph. You're down there and you got chill. <laughs> I got a sweater on. I'm still feeling the, the chill. Hey, and I rang, I rang Jean that night because obviously I couldn't go and see her. And it's like, it's about 10 o'clock at night, half past 10 at night. And everything's, you know, like it all, it's all busy in the instant room. And then suddenly everybody starts to go home because we had a busy day the next day. And I'm just sat there on my own, writing up my policy book and thinking about what's next. And I thought, oh, should I ring Jean? I thought, yeah, I'll ring her. It won't be well, too late. Before you get to that, though, you're, you're glossing over. Let's talk about the arrest. Oh, you know, oh, okay. you, just, you just gloss past the important part. We made, we made the arrest. Oh, but that's not important. I got to call Jean. Yeah, but so, Jean's really important to me. <laughs> <laughs> very important, but to get to the call with Gene, okay. you got to arrest this. So, tell us about the, the the mechanics of the. You know, how do you how do you do it in the UK? You're taking this guy down. Tell us about the arrest teams, the things that you have set up. So the decisions that we had to make was, do we arrest him at like four or five o'clock on a Thursday night when we know by the time you get him into custody and do all the stuff we need to do, he's going to be on an eight hour lie down, and our clock. So I don't know about the Americans, but we have 24 hours on a clock, which can go to 36 hours, and then we have to go to court for a warrant of further detention. We don't have the equivalent of a pace clock, so tell everybody what that is. And and the but you have some you have some things you can do we cannot do. You're the 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 threshold for you to make an arrest is not the threshold for us to make an arrest. And you know what we how long you can hold them and what you can do. So that's why I'm saying walk through the mechanics to like just be an eight hour lie down. What does that mean? So if you just start at the beginning, the fact that we've got a hit on him for the DNA. So if I go back two steps, when they when the scientist, bear in mind, I've been working with this scientist for six years. And before that, I know him really well. He rings Gary to, or he was, no, he doesn't ring Gary. He sends Gary an email to say, I think we've got a hit on Operation Rhodium. So he has been our key link in this case for years before I was there, you know, for 10, 15 years. And he sends an email. It's like, who the fuck sends an email when you've got the best news of this century? <laughs> Why are you not calling and sending up a signal flare and carrier pigeon? Not only does he do that, he says, oh, I'm just going out to a meeting. I'll call you later. <laughs> so he couldn't even get hold of him for two hours. And he didn't put the name on the email. So he didn't say it was Christopher Hampton. He just said, oh, I think we've got a hit. So that was the first issue. Anyway, so having known it was Hampton, 
the next thing is, do we arrest him then? So if we arrest him that afternoon, we bring him into custody. There's lots of stuff to do. So we'd obviously, we need to get another DNA sample from him, which is an evidential swab. So our intelligence one that we took in that car park is good enough to arrest him, reasonable grounds, but we need an evidential one if we're going to charge him. Okay. And we just kind of skipped back that. You said you took a swab in the car park. So you, once yeah. you identified him, what did you do? You said you took an evidential swab in the car park. What did you What did you mean by that? Sorry, did, uh, that was when Gary swabbed him back six weeks earlier. Oh, when, uh, okay, yeah. that was yeah. that was the overt yeah. one where you went up and he agreed. Yeah, to the it. overt one. Which, okay. yeah, sorry, but that just gives us intelligence. That just gives us our grounds to arrest him. It's not enough for evidence to go to get a charge. So we know that we need to get another one. So we need to bring him in, uh, and then the things are that he knows, doesn't he, that he is going to get found out. He knows that clock is ticking. Uh, so where is he? So is he at work? Is he at home? So straight away, we deploy teams out to see if he's at home. So surveillance teams to his home address. Um, I've got the intelligence teams working on his car number, see where it's picking up on AMPR so that we can work out, has he gone to work today, has he come back? And real quickly, we call them license plates, but tell people what the AMPR system yeah. is. So automatic number plate recognition. So we have loads of cameras and you'll be the same. Uh, they're on petrol four courts, they're on CCTV cameras, on highways, and main roads, and they just basically register every car that goes through. And you can put a search in for your car in a certain area, and it'll tell you which cameras it's hit on. So that will give us an idea. We knew what car he had. So was his car moving on that day to a place where we knew he worked and had it come back, more importantly? Um if he knows that he's going to be arrested for a murder, is he going to commit suicide or is he going to do a runner? Those were the other factors that we were thinking about. And knowing that our pace clock, so we're only allowed to keep somebody in custody for 24 hours. After that, a superintendent can authorise a further 12 hours. And what does PACE stand for? Police and Criminal Evidence Act. And that was kind of uh, that was a that was a law that was passed right to ensure that you had timely dispositions of people in custody and some other issues. Bizarrely, it was brought in in 1984 when Melanie was arrested. Now, in 1984, when that inquiry kicked off, they arrested 96 people with no grounds. Basically, if you just lied, you were arrested. If you were carrying a knife in Bristol six months later, you were arrested. They kept them in custody for days on end. There was no time constraints, just until everybody was bored or they made a confession, basically. So that's why the rules were brought in to bring policing into line with being a bit more ethical, quite rightly so. But of course, it does make life difficult for you when you've got complex inquiries and you haven't got much time. And the time of day that you arrest him is also a big factor because the minute you arrest him, the clock starts, right? Yeah, so your clock starts. So if he's in at five o'clock in the evening, your clock's ticking. Three or four hours, you know, to get him a solicitor, get all his stuff done, get him booked in, get some swabs off him. Oh, then it's eight or nine o'clock. You might be able to get an early interview into him, but not much because at 10 or 11 o'clock, he has to have a period of rest overnight that has to be eight hours. So of your 24 hours, you've lost the first 12 before you even think about it. And, and this is the difficulty, isn't it? So do you arrest him now or do you wait till tomorrow morning when, you know, you'll probably have it. But the right thing to do is to arrest him straight away because if he killed himself or did a runner because we hadn't gone straight away, then it would be unforgivable, wouldn't it, really? 
So, yeah. So they went to arrest him. So he, he was actually at work and they picked him up coming home from work, took him into his house and then go and knock the door. And they knocked the door and it's Christopher Hampton. Yep. And I'm from the major crime team. This is one of my DCs. Uh, and I'm arresting you for the rape and murder of Melanie Road in 1984. And he doesn't say a word. And he's now married again. And his wife says, oh, you, you haven't done that. What are they talking about? It's ridiculous. She said, I'll see you later. And he says, no, you won't. And I'm like, <laughs> she says, all right, well, I'll see you tomorrow then. And he said, no, you won't. And that was it. That for me, when I heard that's what he said, that's when I knew that he knew he was never going home again. It was just brilliant. Brilliant. And when, when was, what was the date of the arrest? Do you remember? Oh, of course you remember. Fourth of July, funnily enough. <laughs> oh, it's that day we kick. It's, it was that day uh, we decided we were not going to take it anymore. Yeah, exactly. You and me both. <laughs> just a couple hundred years apart though but uh yeah, that's all right still had good effect <laughs> yeah L let's walk through now because because there are so many key parts to this because in terms of like you say getting them a solicitor getting them charged getting your swab done because you also we're going to talk about this too i'm taking it up there's an issue then with the dna so let's walk through that now Okay, so we do. So I'm a great believer in an early interview. All right. A lot of people like to plan and have a structure, but I'm like, no, let's get in there because they might want to fess up to the job. And if they say nothing, we walk out 10 minutes later. It doesn't matter. But I just think you need to get in straight away and say, did you murder Melanie Road on tape? Uh, so that's what they did. And basically, it, he just says no. I didn't, not responsible. So fine. So then you know what your start point is and that you've got hours of interview ahead and you need to be doing all your evidence. So that was that night. I have got to tell you about my phone call to Jean because it's very important. And then I'll tell you about the DNA challenges. Because I rang her that night at half past 10. And um, sorry, my battery's just low on my computer. I'm just going to plug it in. Excuse me, two secs, guys. Just rummage around down here. I can't believe anything in your house is running out of energy at this point. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it. Right. That's why you got these big plugs, isn't it? To keep yeah. up with me. You got a Mac too. I like that. Yeah. You need a Mac. Got to have a Mac. Okay. We're in. All right. Um, yeah. So I ring her up and I'm like, oh, hi, Jean. It's Julie. I said, I just had to ring you tonight. I know I'd come and see you in the next couple of days, but I just wanted to say that I'm so pleased that we found him, Jean, you know. And she said, oh, Julie. She said, uh, I saw you on the telly a couple of weeks ago. So I'd had another murder case and I'd been on TV on the court steps. She said, I saw you on the court steps two weeks ago on TV. And she said, and I thought to myself then, she said, one day Julie's going to be on the court steps for my Melanie. And I was like, oh, Jean, I am. I am. <laughs> so, yeah. So she had complete faith in me. And she hadn't told me that until I rang her that night. And I just thought that was great. Bless her. And then, um, so the next day, the hard work starts, you're right. So we get our swab, we get it taken to the lab. The traffic guys are like, Julie, is this really urgent? Because I want them to blue light it up to the lab because it's going to be a Friday and the lab will be closed at the weekend and I need to get it turned around. And they're like, are you prepared to sign off on the risk? I'm like, fuck yeah, I'm prepared to sign off on the risk. Of course I am. You're always doing this stuff. Just get it out there. Like, how can people be so, like, wishy-washy? That's my head. The in. risk? What, what do they mean, sign off on the risk? Oh, 
driving quickly to the lab with just a DNA swab. What if they have a crash on the way? Oh, geez. What if there's an earthquake? Well, you know, what if there's an apocalypse? What well, if I used to say, what if worms had machine guns, birds wouldn't fuck with them? I mean, we could what if ourselves to death. Exactly. Oh, that was my point. And anyway, they're meant to be professional drivers. So yeah, get on with it. Good so they did. So we got my swab to the lab, so that's all good. Uh, and then we're just busy the next day. So we need to find out everything we can about this guy now from 1984. So where was he living? Who was he living with? What car was he driving? Because even with DNA, we have to corroborate it. And, um, you know, so the f- we needed to make sure he was in Bath at that time. Could we prove that in any way and all this stuff? So we're doing all this work. And Julie, at what point did you did you realize, again, going back to the other thing, they're always in the system – did you know that day or was it the next day? When did you realize he was never in the system? He was never on our radar anywhere. When Gary rang me to tell me the result, I said to him, is he in the system? And he's like, no. I was like, fucking hell. I thought that was such a good strategy. <laughs> well, I mean, what else could you do, right? <laughs> it was a you good strategy have a lot of other options. Exactly. Yeah. Got everybody going, didn't it? So, yeah. Um, so we did all our stuff. We got the stuff to the lab and the lab, they do their work, you know, they're really good. And they say, yeah, the DNA matches, but they're not going to give me a statement. And it's like five o'clock, half past five, and they're going home for the weekend. And I'm like, you can't do that because if we don't have a statement, the CPS, who's our Crown Prosecution Service, so like your um, DA is up, they're not going to charge. They won't authorize the charge. And uh, and this guy's like, well, tough, basically. And I'm like, no, it's not fucking tough. You've got to do it. I'm not asking for war and peace. I just need four lines saying the exhibit number of the swab, you've compared it to MR8, and it's a match. That's all I need you to say. I don't need statistics. you just got to tell me it's a match. And we had a big falling out over it, a big falling out. Uh, and I was like, I've been working with this company for years. We've spent a lot of money. We must have spent £100,000 with them doing all our swabs. And they're telling me on a Friday night, they're going home and not giving me the statement that I need, which meant I'd have to release Hampton. So I had to go and apologise on the Monday morning, apparently, but I didn't care about that. They did give me the statement eight there o'clock that night. <laughs> there you so go. That was stressful. Yeah, they didn't know who they were dealing with, did they? <laughs> <laughs> I bet if you called again, he wouldn't say no. <laughs> And then the next day, so of course our time runs out on the clock because we hadn't had the scientific results back till late. So we needed to go to court for a warrant of further detention. And does that include the thirty, the extra hours that the uh, superintendent could sign yeah. off? Yeah, so we've had our 36 hours. So we've run out of time at five in the morning. So in England, what we have to do is we ring up the court and we say we need to come to court to apply for a warrant of further detention but we'll be out of time, effectively, so we should let him go. And the court can basically give you authority to keep them outside that time until they appear before the court, and then they take the hours off at the other end. It's just like a bit of a maths test. So the court said, yeah, that's fine. Bring him in for nine in the morning. Those four hours we're authorising, and that's a legitimate process, so all is good. So they go to court. I don't need to go to court because it's pretty straightforward. We just need him back. We're only asking, I think we'd ask for 12 hours to have time to get him back, to re-interview him, put to him the fact that it's absolutely a billion to one or whatever it is, evidential that it's him. What does he want to say? Because once you've charged, you can't interview again. So that's our one chance then. The next thing is I get a phone call from the court, from Mida, who's my deputy, Neil Mida. All right, Jules? Yeah, Mida, how's it going? Got the warrant? 
no. I was like, what do you mean, no? And I thought he was winding me up. I thought he was taking the piss. I said, yeah, you have. I'll see you in a bit. He's like, no, Julie, it's all gone wrong. We've got a district judge and she's refusing. I was like, fuck, why is she refusing? Oh, I don't know. Right, I'm coming down. So before I went down, we had everything on computer then. So you charge somebody on computer now, you'd build the charges. But of course, there's no charges at court. And if the judge was going to let him go, he would have walked out of the dock there and then. So I found an old paper charge sheet from whenever. I don't know. It must have been at least 10 years old. I wrote out the murder charge on it because I was going to charge him in the dock if I had to. There was no way he was going out of that court not being charged, even if we'd run out of time. So I went down to court. Uh, had an argument with the judge, met our prosecutor, explained to him what was going on. We got another hearing in front of the judge with him. And basically what they were saying was they were trying to say we'd had an abusive process in that we had known about the DNA hit from the moment we took it six weeks earlier, five weeks earlier, and we should have acted then and done all our work then. What they didn't realise properly was that we'd only had the result for less than 36 hours and we had to get the evidential one. And in that 36 hours, we'd done all this work to put him in Bath, where he lived, what car he was driving, who he lived with. We'd driven across the country, interviewed her. So, you know, we'd done loads and loads and loads of work, seen his ex-wife, seen a woman that he'd had an affair with. You know, we'd just done so much in 36 hours and they were going to let him go free. So we won that argument. That <laughs> was good. So I didn't have to charge him in the dock, brought him back to the police station. And then I had to wait for the prosecutor to come back. Oh, my God. Do you have this trouble with your district attorneys or not? <laughs> not like that, but uh, they're not all as aggressive as we'd like them to we be have, sometimes. But the guy's name was Wu, is that right? Hugh. Hugh. Okay, Hugh. Hugh. He's Welsh. That's why it's spelled funny. Welsh. Hugh. Okay. Um. Well, I tell you, we'll see our process here. And this is like, I'll give you an example of a homicide case. You'd go out somewhere, you'd work a scene, you develop the evidence, you would develop what we call probable cause to arrest, which means those facts and circumstances which would lead a reasonable person to believe that you have, you have, will, or, you know, had committed the crime. Yeah. Um, and then if I had probable cause to arrest you, then I would arrest you, take you there. And then all we had to do to keep you was file what we call a probable cause affidavit. The judge would review it within 24 hours. And he said, yeah, you know, uh, it's set a bond and stuff. So it was, uh, that's why I say, I think that you guys do, there's a lot of great stuff you do, but the one thing that would drive me fucking nuts is all the process and the paperwork. It's like, I should be out arresting bad guys and girls and putting murderers in jails. Yet, what am I doing? Hearings, paperwork, this, that. It's like, I just don't know how you guys do it. I know. It drives you insane. Anyway, he was in court and like we, the judge only gave us six hours. So they cracked on and interviewed him. But uh, we were like two hours off that six hours being up and he needed to come. Eventually, rocks up. So I'm ringing, ringing, ringing him. And eventually he rocks up and he's like, he sits down. He's like reading it all really carefully, really methodically. I briefed him on the case. And then he says, you haven't got a full DNA profile. And I was like, yeah, we have. He's like, no, you haven't. You've only got 19 of the 20 alleles. He said, I can't charge it. You need corroborating evidence. I said, we've got corroborating evidence. I said, we've put him in Bath. We've got a statement from the girl he was living with. We've got the car that's registered to an address in Bath on that time. We've done all this work, blah, blah, blah. No, no, I don't think I can do that. And honestly, I lost my shit, to be honest. I've like, I got my picture of Melanie, you know, on my folder 
that's there in front of me, I said, Hugh, we're not talking about some fucking poxy burglary. We're talking about the murder of this young girl. Look at her, stabbed 26 times, raped twice on her way home. Stop fucking about. There is enough to charge. And uh, Andy Mott walks in and he's like my scientific guy, really lovely guy. And he's like, Hugh, it doesn't matter about that one, Aliol. That would just be because there's a speck of dust or something in 1984. It's fine. It's absolutely fine. Did he not read your book about the point that says, if you don't appoint me as your deputy, there'll be another murder? Does he not know that he's already tried to commit murder before? He just doesn't get it. Jesus Christ. I was like on my knees. Do you have any idea how long we've worked on this? We've got the killer. I said, what are the public going to say if we release him? It's an absolute outrage. It would be a disgrace. So, yeah. Anyway. He did agree. So then we had like 15 minutes. And he agreed left. why. He was more afraid and fear for his fear. He agreed with the science. She pulled out the chalk. Yeah, I know. It's just scared of me. I'm not a scary person, I promise you. I'm genuinely You're going to have a hard time it. convincing us. Uh, yeah. You're not okay. kidding. Yeah, right. So then I like, right, and they're like, boss, you're going to charge him? I was like, fucking right I am. So then we're driving across Bristol to where he's kept in the cells, you know, uh, and we literally get there with 15 minutes left and it's like a big custody unit. So it's like got a central bit where they all stand, you know, the custody sergeants. And then there's six or seven stations where they bring all the different prisoners in and they go and bring him out. And it's like, deathly silence in there because everybody knows that this is the biggest gig of the century as far as the police are concerned this guy's murdered that girl 31 years ago and of course i'm there and a di dci whatever i was chief inspector never charges anybody ever why not because you just get your dcs to do it for you delegate so yeah is it just more of a perfunctory thing just like a pro forma i go down i charge you i mean yeah it so is. what is the process for doing that, though? So when you do you have specific words or ways you have to yeah. charge them? Yeah. So it's written out. So the charge is very, um, it's, yeah, it's, um, the protocol is absolutely bang on. So basically, I, and I just stood there, I looked him in the eye. And that's the first time I've looked him in the eye when he's brought out. And he just stood there really impassively. And I said, uh, I told him who I was. And I said, I am Julie Mackay, and I'm the senior investigating officer into the murder of Melanie Road, because I wanted him to be really clear about who it was. <laughs> and uh, I subsequently learned that he used to call me the smug bitch, but I don't mind that. I take that every day of the week. And I stood there and said, Christopher Hampton, I am charging you with the murder and rape of Melanie Road on the 8th of June, 1984. And then you caution him, you do not have to say anything. May harm your defence if you don't mention now something you later rely on in court. Anything you do say will be recorded. And it was just the most satisfying thing I've ever done. Well, what was his reaction at that point? Absolutely deadpan. No hmm. denial, no nothing. You got the nothing. wrong guy. Didn't say anything. And you could have heard a pin drop. It's like everybody that was moving around in that custody unit as well has stopped almost mid-step. There's also an art to interviewing these folks, too, because that's one same thing. See, in the United States, a, a guy could just tell you, fuck off, I want a lawyer, and there's nothing you can do about it. I mean, you can't bring them in. But once you've got them in there, they got to sit down with their solicitor, you know, lawyer. And even though they can 
refuse to answer, like say no comment or whatever it is, they still have to sit there while you go through a series of questions, right? Yeah, they do. Absolutely. And uh, so we've got experts that do that, expert interviewers and interview advisors. So I set the strategy in that, you know, that first interview, that's my decision. I want them to go and do that always. And then we agree about what the strategy is going to be. So what topics we're going to cover, how we're going to do it, when the breaks are going to be, what we're disclosing to the solicitor what and him and all that that goes with it. So he was interviewed that following morning on the Friday, all through the day and the evening, you know, in little chunks, if you like. So 90 minute chunks. And then again, on the Saturday, when he came back from court, just about that final evidential bit, you know, basically this is it now do you want to say anything do you want to change your mind and he just nothing all the way through no comment see and that's that's such stark contrast to the way we would do interviews because we don't have to disclose anything to him nothing you know and it's like it's really about uh, you know the only time you have to disclose things is when it actually moves forward and the defense files a motion for discovery then you can disclose things but as i'm talking to you if you're my murder suspect i'm asking you where were you on this night you know well, you know, because you want to catch them in a lot, but they don't, you don't have to disclose your evidence. Well, I mean, you will, like for certain things, it's like when you want to just drop the hammer on them and say, look, you can deny it all you want, but here's what it is. We've got the DNA. Yeah. So we have, uh, and that's absolutely right. And we can do, we call it stage disclosure. So we don't necessarily do it all at the beginning, but the solicitors say, I've received no disclosure. My clients received no disclosure. I'm advising them no comment. So like, yeah, whatever. You know, that's my opinion is, so what? Uh, we're going to ask you these questions because we need to test our evidence. And then when we've asked these questions, we might disclose something to you. But we have to give them disclosure at some point in those interviews. But the strategy behind asking some of those questions, even if they say no comment, in other words, that goes back to your caution. Like you say, like if you fail to mention something now that you later rely on in court, it could harm your defense. See, I almost know your procedures here. <laughs> I've watched enough. I've watched enough police, British police procedurals. I've watched Foil's War and New Tricks, and you know, you name it. Julie, Julie, don't feed his ego. Don't do that. I reckon he just did a bit of research before we came on today. So he can look really good. <laughs> he's, been, he's been drunk with law enforcement officers in England before. Yeah. <laughs> we had him on our podcast. I yeah. actually, had, I think I was telling you this. A couple of blokes from us, New Scotland Yard, my mates. Uh, I ended up getting one of their one of the guys got so drunk he fell down. A Welsh Welsh gentleman, Graham Burridge, fell down, broke three fingers on his left hand. <laughs> and Thomas left his uh, overcoat with his keys and his mobile phone on the train, and so he's knocking on his wife's door at two o'clock in the morning, uh, trying to be let in. So yes. I bet he was popular. Yeah, I've been up drinking with the mates from SO15, the Counterterrorism Command, before. Yeah, it's a good place to be. It is. But, but no, what I was saying is that, I mean, it's like, you know, you've got all of these procedures and stuff, but um, what ultimately, so now you've got this guy, the, like I said, the work's really starting. So tell us about the, the rest of the interview. Does he say anything at all during the interview or is it all no comment or refuse to answer? Never. So what they do is they gave a, a written statement, literally, that says, I, Christopher Hampton, am not responsible for the rape and murder of Melanie Road. That was it. Wrote it down, handed it over, said nothing. And does that harm their defense later when they yes, provide it a written does. statement? Okay. Yeah. yeah, absolutely it does. Because he's had an opportunity to explain. So he could have said, I was off my face and lost my shit, you know, not that we would believe him. He could have said, uh, one of the things that I was quite um, cognizant of was he could have said somebody else had stabbed and killed her 
and he, he just had sex with the body because yeah. yeah. we've had those cases in the UK, as I'm sure you have. Um, so it's really important to disprove all these potential things, even if you don't know what he's going to say. Because he can't come back later and use that as a defense. Look, I just walked up upon the body. And you go, no, nope. during the interview, you had the chance and you said no comment. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You had your chance to tell us that. If that's what happened, why didn't you say? Yeah. So, um, or he could have said he had consensual sex with her and then somebody else stabbed her afterwards. You know, there was there's lots of different permutations, aren't there? So, yeah. So then we had to get ready for court. And we, so disclosure comes back again because we've got new disclosure rules where we have to disclose stuff, which is fine. Um, that came in in 1995. And then there's old disclosure rules where you disclose everything. So we went to court saying, yeah, so we wanted new disclosure rules. So we would disclose to defence everything we knew that was relevant to Christopher Hampton. All right, that was our starting point, which is, I don't know, say say that was like 2,000 documents or whatever, okay? They wanted old rules. So old rules was 30,000 documents. Oh, gosh. And to well, disclose that. you popular with one of the members of your team because now they have to work on disclosure, right? I had to get, so normally you have one disclosure officer, maybe two. I had to get a team. So I had a sergeant, a lead detective, and six others because wow. we had to schedule every single document of those 30,000, write a summary of them and whether they were relevant or not. Oh, my God. And I used to go, I used to go into the briefings. I, I say, hi, Glenn, how are we doing on disclosure cities? Like, Julia, we're 1.4% through it. And we had six months to get all this done. I was like, okay. And then you go like two weeks later, how are we doing? 1.8%. I was like, oh my fucking God, we're never going to get this done. Wouldn't it be defense... easier just to send the guy a note in jail and say, look, it'd be easier for all of us if you just off yourself yeah. in jail and save the taxpayers a lot of money? I know, but of course, they just want abuse of process, don't they? They want to say, we haven't disclosed abuse of process, kick the case out. That was their tactic. Anyway, so needless to say, we got it done. And you got it all done. I mean, but just just right now, the sheer, I, I mean, the thing that impressed me when I f finished reading the book and listening to some of this, it's just the enormity of all the tasks and all the work that you did putting this case together. I mean, do you know how many places would just say, fuck it, it's a full <laughs> case, uh, you know, we did our best. I, I mean, you're going, 30,000 documents, I, maybe the guy didn't do it. Maybe we should just let him go and worry about it. What you did was just amazing. There's no way he was walking out that door. No well, there's way. no way you were going to let him, even if you had to pin him <laughs> down with your car again like you did the other folks. She was going to introduce him to the chalk and the tape. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I should just carry that around with me, shouldn't I? <laughs> I'm afraid you do. You look down at him, your tires were over me. You, you know you're on a double yellow line, mate. <laughs> I can't because the tire's on my chest. <laughs> You know, and I hate to jump ahead here, but I, I'm anxious to t for you to tell what happened because it's. So I love we go, it. we go through. We get six months down the line. Okay, so we've done everything. We've got the integrity of every single exhibit. We have done everything, and of course, it's overwhelming. And we're ready for a not guilty trial. And three days before, uh, we get a note from his solicitor saying he's going to change his plea to guilty. Mm. But. We can't tell anybody until he formally does it in the court, apart from, of course, Jean and Adrian and Karen. So now we have to get there. We do victim impact statements. I don't know. Do you do those in the States? Yeah. So we go around. So get the guys to go out. 
and they get they each write their own victim impact statements, basically saying the impact of Melanie's murders had on them as individuals. And uh, so one of my great passions in life is I'm a horse rider, okay? So I ride as well as my kids did, um, and um, I competed, and I'm back now competing, and it's great. But I go to badminton horse trials, which is a really big deal in the UK. I think you've got one in uh, – it's not racing like Kentucky, but you've got horse trials, five-star horse trials in Kentucky, which is the same thing. Uh, so I go every year with my friend Liz, you know, who helped me get out of my dark places. And we have our picnic and we watch the dressage. And I'm sat there at the horse trials. This is just before our murder trials due to start on the Monday. And Adrian's ringing me up. Julie, hi, Adrian. How are you? I'm not happy. I said, oh, dear. Why is that then? He said, I am... Um, there's certain stuff I can't put in my victim impact statement that I think I should. I was like, yeah, I'm really sorry about that, Adrian, but, you know, we've got rules. Well, I want to say that he should be hung, drawn, quartered and left to die in a dark cell. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I know you want to say that, but you're not allowed. And in the background, you've got the tannoy going for whichever the next competitor is. <laughs> and it was just like really surreal. As I'm trying just to just imagine discuss. people sitting next to you listening. No, <laughs> no, no Adrian, <laughs> you can't say drowning quarter. No, you can't stab him with a rusty butter knife. All these people are going, Who have I sat next to? Yeah, who's <laughs> this woman? I know. I think I'm crazy. Probably am. So, yeah, anyway, so we get through it all, we sort it out, and we go to court on the Monday morning. <clears throat> And it is packed. So you've got all the press there because by now they know that stuff's coming. So Rob Murphy, who wrote the book for me, he's obviously there. And I'm like, Rob, it's all going to change because they're expecting it to be a not guilty trial. And I'm like, he's going to plead today. You need to get your shit together to get lunchtime reporting. We go into court. Jean's there. Adrian and Karen sat in the front row of the public gallery. All the rest of it's all full. And he comes up from the cells then, Christopher Hampton, and he's in the dock and it's got glass across it. And there's a, a dock officer with him and and our QC, Kate Brunner, who's brilliant, brilliant woman who I've worked with before. She stands up and she has to read out basically the facts of the case. Now, even though Jean knows all this, I've been to see her over the weekend to go through it again with her because when it's read out in the brutality of the court as to what he did, it's absolutely despicable. It really is. And I didn't want her to be hearing it again for the first time in that courtroom. And it had had a really bad impact on her over the weekend, really bad. And I was quite worried about her. Because she's, what, 81 now? 82? And anyway, so she sat in the court. The officer in the dock, there's a girl in the dock officer with him. And as it's being read out, the fact that Melanie's been stabbed 26 times and raped and she was only 200 metres from home, you, the dock officer starts crying. You can hear her sobbing in the dock, standing next to Hampton. And like the whole court is just there looking at her but feeling the same sort of pain. Does that make sense? And then they go and do their victim impact statements and they're just like, oh, it's unbelievable. And Karen went first and read hers about the murder of her little sister and the effect it's had on her. And Adrian read his and about how he's looked at every man in the street for 31 years wondering, did you kill my little sister? and then Jean when she went up so she didn't take a walking stick with her and she's just so dignified 
and she goes and stands in the witness box and the most powerful thing that she said was, my name is Jean Road. I am the mother of Melanie Road. And that alone just sort of brought tears to my eyes because I thought, you're her mother, but she's not here anymore now. And she just talks about the pain, the pain about how she found out of Melanie's murder, about how she went and saw her blood on the side there and she didn't want it to rain because the rain would wash away what was left of Melanie. And the torment it had caused in her family and how it had torn them all apart. And it was just, honestly, everybody in that courtroom was moved to tears by her. And then as dignified as you like, she finishes and walks back and sits down again. And, you know, it's, it's people like this in the world that help the rest of us to be the best people we can, isn't it? Very well said. It really is, yeah. Just amazing. Uh, yeah, what was his reactions during all this? Could you, I mean, could you see him? I could see him, but nothing. Deadpan all the way through. No remorse whatsoever. When is the plea entered, before or after the victim impact statements? Uh, before, when we first go into court. So they, the judge asked him to stand up. So it's very, it's still very antiquated in the English court. So although we have a more modern courtroom, so I've just got my dog appeared. <laughs> we have a very English courtroom. Uh, the judge still wears red robes, uh, you know, with the fur around the cuffs and he's got his wig on. We don't do black cap anymore because we don't hang them. But yeah, apart from that, and his sash, and it's, yeah, very formal. And the, the QC, you know, they've got wigs on and they've got their black gowns and they all stand up and sit down in different order. Very, very traditional still. And so they call it being arraigned. So the, the clerk to the court says he wants to be arraigned. And would you like to, do you plead guilty or not guilty? And, it, and the judge says, stand up, Mr. Hampton. <laughs> he stands up. Uh, and do you plead guilty or not guilty? And he says really quietly, guilty. And the judge repeats it loudly so that everybody can hear it. Guilty. And like the whole court's like, right. You bastard. That's what they're all thinking. And there's no taking it back after that, right? The minute no. he says guilty, Once it's, it's done. done, it's done. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Now, and so what, what's his age at this point? 63. Okay. And then do you guys, do they sentence immediately or is that? Yeah. He sentenced immediately. And sentencing was really difficult because in the 1980s, if he'd have got sentenced to prison then, for this murder, he would have probably got 18 years because they had really low tariffs, didn't they? I don't know why. If he'd done that murder on that day in uh, in 2016, he and gone by the sentencing guidelines then, he would have got 31 years, which to me is what he should have had because he's had 31 years on the run. So that was apt. <laughs> but because the judges always have to balance up appeal against sentence, he took a little bit of the current rules and a little bit of the old rules and sentenced him to 22 years in prison. So it's a life sentence, but minimum term or of 22 years. So he'll come out or be eligible for parole at 85. He's going to die in prison. It's a shame they couldn't take him to the Tower of London and just take care of him. I know. Wouldn't there. that be great? Yeah. I'd have people like him this, absolutely. Yeah. Let's see if you can fly. Let's clear. <laughs> yeah. 
So yeah, so he yeah take him down, and then as I was coming out of court, so um, everybody's going out, and in our court there's like you go through two doors before you get into the courtroom, so it's like a little vestibule, and I bump into Hugh between the two doors. It's just me and him, uh, Hugh, uh, the prosecutor, you know, who I'd had that big row with, and he he just shook my hand. He said, "Julie, you are absolutely right." He said, "Well done." I said, "Thanks, nice. Hugh." Told nice. you. <laughs> wow. So the good news is that I went on the court steps and did my media release and did loads of stuff and it just made the whole country feel better that even after 31 years you don't get away with rape and murdering a young girl. Oh, it just reestablishes trust in the in the law enforcement, the rule of law in your country. Yeah. No, it's great. Job damn, job well done, girl. <laughs> Holy then, cow. I went back to my desk and I got an email saying I was not successful on the paper sift on my application for promotion. (laughs) (laughs) And I just got a Crown Court commendation for leadership. (laughs) I was like, really? (laughs) Oh, my God. (sighs) Had he not pled guilty, how long long would that trial have lasted, do you think? Um, It was scheduled for three weeks. So, yeah. And had it gone to trial, I mean, it seems like the DNA evidence would have been really conclusive, but it's still like anything else. You roll the dice, right? At some point. Now, the only difference is you don't have to have a unanimous verdict, right? You could have a 10-2 verdict. Yeah, Um, we can, yeah. Yeah, see, I think that's brilliant to me. It's kind of like you got one holdout. Why should the entire system be held up by one holdout when you got 11 people or 10 people going, yeah, they did it, or 10 people going, no, they didn't do it? Yeah. But with us, it has to be unanimous. Yeah. When we have to try for unanimous and then, you know, after they've sat there for a couple of days deliberating, can't agree, then the judge will then say they can consider a majority verdict. He'll give a direction. If they if they do a majority verdict, does it still end up with the same sentence or is that tempered because it wasn't no, unanimous? still the same sentence. Yeah. Sentencing guidelines are separate. Yeah. Has he, <clears throat> excuse me, has, has he or his attorney tried to uh, file an appeal on anything or is it just a done deal? No. So the only thing that they could appeal on would be the length of sentence, and they haven't. So they've just accepted that, which, like I say, I think he got off quite lightly. He should have had 31 years. So, yeah. And I've written to him in prison to see if he'd talk to me because I just would really be interested to know what happened that night and why he did it for future learning as much as anything. And? He's ignored me. Maybe you should call him because nobody nobody turns down Julie Mackay when she you know, just tell him, hey look now, <laughs> just send him that passage works. send him that passage about you know the tape and the chalk and all that yeah. <laughs> yeah maybe I'll just send him a copy of the book let's see does he want to come <laughs> hey, oh well, man how did when did it really hit you though that the case is over it's like there's no more indexing there's no more swabbing there's no more interviews there's no more late nights I mean you have late nights for other stuff but when did it finally hit you that this this is over. So I went out with Jean about a week later um, and just in the afternoon I went and picked her up and we just went and had a little walk and a cup of tea and it was like then, yeah, so we've done it now, Jean, you know, we can rest easy. So I guess that was it. Did it change anything for Jean? Uh, was she still the same or did did you detect like at least some She's, oh, she's so glad. She hates him with a passion. There's no forgiveness in Jean for him. You know, some people do forgive, don't they? But she's not one of those. And she is rude. That monster, that monster should die behind bars, is what she says. She's right. 
Yeah. And she's great. I mean, I saw her last week. We went out for, for lunch last week. I love her. I was going to say, how's her health now? Is she doing yeah. good? She was poorly for a bit, but she's she's great again at the moment. She just tells me she's going to live to be 96. Good for her. It's like, fantastic. Yeah. So we go out and we just have a laugh and it's fab. And I love her. She's amazing. You went through a lot of your career just struggling to even make sergeant. And then it's kind of like you saved all of your promotions for the last few years of your uh, job, right? Yeah, because it's difficult because you've got kids at home. You can't dedicate your time to it, can you? So, yeah, so I didn't get, I got bumped back again. So Gloucestershire, which is a neighbouring force, they were advertising for chief inspectors. And all you had to do, I'm not kidding, was just fill your name out on an application form and you got an interview. I thought, I can do that shit. So that's (laughs) what I did. So three weeks later, I'm in Gloucestershire in front of another board doing a load more interviews and just did really, really well. You know, I was like top scoring candidate. And so I got promoted. I left Avon and Somerset after 27 years and went to Gloucestershire and got promoted there within a year to superintendent. I went there and they said, oh, Julie, so how do you see your career here in Gloucestershire? I said, I'm going to be a superintendent in 12 months time. And he looks at me as if I was completely mad. This uh, He's head of CID. Oh, okay. All right then. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> and a year later I was. Uh, and then I was head of the murder teams again, which is just like my dream job for three police forces. Um, I was just so lucky to have had the career that I had. It really genuinely was. I loved it. I had the best time. You know, and I think I speak for law enforcement around the world when we say thank you for sticking with this. Holy cow. Maintaining your focus, knowing what your mission was, realizing the impact it would have on the family, uh, regardless of what it does for your career. I mean, that's what it takes in law enforcement, and that's why we get into it, because we want to help others. And, man, you you have set a standard that's just almost unattainable for law enforcement around the world to stick to it. I disagree with that, you see, because I think we're all brilliant at what we do. And I think, we, you know, you guys have done the most amazing work and just in law enforcement. And, do you know, at the end of this case, I got everybody together that had worked on it from 1984 to the officers that arrested his daughter that got her DNA on the system that helped the uh, familial run all the way through all the scientists and did a presentation on the case to say this is how it worked and the part you played in it because without all those people it would never have happened and I got my friend so Melanie used to bake cakes for everybody all right she was known for it and I got my friends and family to bake cakes to do afternoon tea so that they could understand the part they played. Because none of us do this gig on our own, do we? You know? Well, wait a minute. Let's see. What's that word? Uh, leaders coming out of here. Holy cow. <laughs> Speaking wow. of leadership, you also, you call it fizz, but you also popped open a bottle of champagne. Oh, yeah, we did. Yeah. We'd had a bottle of champagne at the office for over two and a half years. And people would come in and say, oh, what's that bottle of champagne there, Julia? I'm like, yeah, that's when we catch Melanie's killer. And they're like, oh, okay. And uh, at that night, when we charged him, after I charged him, went back to the office, dusted it off, got our little plastic cups out, because you never have proper glasses in a, in a murder team, do you? And yeah, and we there was only six of us left there. It was really late at night, and we drank that champagne. And although it was warm, it was delicious. It's good, good, oh, it? yeah. 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 That was good. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Yeah. So, yeah. So, you retired at what rank? Uh, detective superintendent. Detective, in charge of the murder teams, yeah. Detective superintendent. So why did you decide to pull the plug? Uh, it's really complicated. So we it's financial in the UK with our pensions. 
uh, I won't bore you, but because I got promoted a lot later on in life, I had to pay a fuckload of tax and staying just was no longer financially viable. So otherwise you, I would have stayed. English love your taxes. This, this is the whole reason we fought the damn war with you guys to begin with was taxing our breakfast beverage. You know, yeah, it's ridiculous. But there you go. But I, you know, do you know what? I had the best career. I'm really proud of what I did. I'm really privileged. And now I do work around homicide prevention. You know, I do domestic homicide reviews. I do quite a lot of media stuff. And I do a lot of charity work for women and girls, you know, in this country and abroad to keep them safe. Uh, and I'm really lucky. I work with an American charity, actually. And uh, yeah, I'm Which just. Which can name it? So yeah, so it's called Threads of Red, um, and it's a really small nonprofit, and um, basically sustainable sanitary wear for girls to keep them in education, so they don't get child marriage, they don't get raped. We do sex education for men, women, boys, and girls. Uh, we just come back from Cambodia. We'll be in Africa again this year, and to at least three different countries yeah and they're just phenomenal and i love them i love the americans because i really enjoy working with them we have such good fun uh, uh yeah i'm lucky give them a good plug here if they want to find more about this charity where should they go to yeah so, th- so i'm afraid the best i can do for you is on instagram or um or facebook pages um and threads is t-h-r-e-d-s threads of red they're based up in oregon but not that that matters because we work from all over the place. We can post that on site, right, Morgan? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'll send you guys a link or something. You know, the, and what you're, I'm loving hearing this. You're after law enforcement because we have a saying: just because our oath, just because we retired, does not mean our oaths expired. You know, we took oaths to help others, and you're a prime example. Continuing That's after so you're in law enforcement. Oh, I think so many of us as well are just dedicated to doing the right thing to make people's lives better and using our skills to do that. Yeah. And your kids? How are your kids doing now? Oh, they're bloody great. Honestly, they're hysterical. So Callum, uh, so he lives in France now, although he's come home at the moment. Um, But yeah, he's really, really good. Um, Connie, um, in fact, she's in Canada at the moment. So she's a snowboard instructor there. So she, she competed her horse to international level. And then decided that horsework was too hard, so she's out having fun. Is she uh, over in Whistler by chance, or British Columbia? Uh, she's yeah, she's on the the Big White. Good for her. Which, yeah, which is not Whistler; it's in the middle, isn't it? An hour from Banff. Okay. Oh, Banff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a beautiful area too. Yeah. yeah. And then um, Toby, you know, who is obviously the one that kept me in school every week. So he's here in the UK still, and he's a tree surgeon. And in fact, he'd like to go to the States and do some lumberjacking. So uh, I was like, yeah, do it. But uh, yeah, he's fab as well. So they're all great. And, you know, I'm proud of them. He comes over, tell Toby he he has to learn the lumberjack song from Monty Python. (laughs) Yeah, I will. (laughs) He probably knows it. I'm going to put it into the system. He's going to be asked about it at the border. And if he can't sing the song, (laughs) he'll learn it. Okay. And he comes, he comes on the volunteering work with us on the charity missions as well. So he was in Cambodia as well with the American charity. And if, if somebody wanted to buy your book, where should they find it? Yeah, they can find it on Amazon to hunt a killer. And, um, yeah, I just hope you guys enjoy it. And, just learn that we can achieve anything and we're all brilliant and we've all got resilience. It's just sometimes we get tested. Mm-hmm. Yeah. God bless. For, for years. I mean, years. <laughs> yeah, for years my yeah. whole life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, just, I, I think I speak for everybody. We say, God bless you for your, your professionalism 
for just hanging in there. You, you, we have a word here we call stick to itiveness. You stuck to it and brought justice. That's what it's all about. Job well freaking done. Well done, ma'am. Well done. I've got me I've got me rosewood trunching up here in honor of you. So I'm gonna beat him with that stick one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me mine. too. <laughs> this is mine. Hey, but no, seriously, uh, this is me saluting you proper British style, saying thank you for your great work. I mean, you did awesome. And this was so fun, too. We had a couple folks, you'll probably see we had a couple hiccups, but we, we fixed them. But the point about it is the story. It's, it's the stuff you went through at the beginning, how you managed through the middle, and then bringing it home in the end. Every story has every story has three parts, the beginning, middle, and end. And this is such a great story. And so this is us thanking you for your service. You don't go anywhere. Everybody else, stay tuned for the debrief. Again, as I said, if you're not impressed by this, you are listening to the wrong podcast. Boy, you're not kidding. You talk about somebody that, you know, we even mentioned this to her. We told her about the U.S. term stick-to-itiveness, sticking to it. This, that's exactly what Julie did in this investigation. She never gave up. She never let the, the circumstances overwhelm her. She accepted her other responsibilities and duties, not only as a professional law enforcement officer, but as a mother. Uh, I'm, I'm just so proud that I, we've had the opportunity to meet her and hear her story. I just hope we get to meet her sometime in person. Oh, yeah. That'll be a hoot over some, oh, you don't drink anymore, but uh, you're going to have to probably uh, make Probably sure two drunk asses home. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, that'll be fun. But if we do, if we tip a pint together, we will uh, definitely record it for posterity. But uh, <laughs> now, again, just uh, again, one of those people, like I said, um, you put her, I tell you, if you team her up with Bill Sarukas, um, there'd be no criminals safe in this world, no matter even no matter where they're hiding. You're not kidding. And, and you heard you heard Julie talk about her her dark time when she actually considered suicide. You know, she's considered hanging herself. And so this is a good place for us. If if you are considering that yourself, if you're in crisis, you feel like you're too anxious to to deal with something, or you're considering suicide. There's a national hotline here in the United States. Just dial nine eight eight. It operates twenty four seven three sixty five. Don't go it alone. There's somebody waiting there, and it's not going to be the operator that talked to Julie and said, oh, well, that's the way it goes. They'll get a professional on there, get some help. Please, please, just dial 988. That's all we're asking. That's it. All right. Well, guys, hey, um, again, fabulous episode, fabulous guests, and uh, we want to bring more to you. Well, one of the ways we do that is head on over to Apple and Spotify. Just rate us, you know, one to five stars. Let us know what you think. If you rate us, you know, just give us a reason why. If you don't like the five stars, you say, I think you're worth three, let us know because we, we, we want to improve. Seriously, well, by the time that this comes out, we're going to be on a new platform doing new things. We're going to be doing more things to advertise the show and to increase the awareness of it. So anything that you do to help us, trust me, is sincerely appreciated. Um, <laughs> so we really appreciate it. Head on over to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. That's where you'll find her book, To Hunt a Killer. The real story, the 31-year story of tracking down a piece of shit. Um, and I, that's a technical term. It's a legal term, a piece of shit. Convicted piece of shit that will die in prison, which is good for him. So head on over there, and that's where we post that stuff. Uh, and just you know, take a look at it. We've also got, like I said, the other books that are on there and our merch list. Also follow us on that thing they call social media, at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. But where you got to be is Patreon. Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. The end of the DEA Narcos on the Real DEA Narcos Cali Edition is coming. Episode 15 
the magnus opum, the end of everything, opus, I mean, uh, opum, opum, opium, magnus opus, the end of this, I will tell you what, you will not find a more authoritative source on the Cali cartel or on the hunt for Pablo than what you find here. We do 911. As you said, Murph, earlier, you can't make this shit up. The stuff we don't do on our regular podcast, we do over there. So you, this stuff is free. That stuff, uh, we just ask you to part with two important things, your money, which you can always get back, but your time, you can never get back. So we really appreciate you folks who help us. Absolutely. Thanks. Come over and give us a shot. Uh, and again, too, on, even here on the podcast, if you're hearing things that you like, don't like, or even suggestions on something we could do a little different, contact us and let us know. This show is for you. That's why we're doing this, the, the whole podcast season. We're into, what, our 19th month with Game of Crimes, I think it is. So um, response has been excellent. We want to do even better. So let us know your thoughts. Yep. And thank you guys, you players out there, once again, for playing the biggest, baddest, most dangerous, and UK-English Brit-friendly game of all, the Game of Crimes.